0: Now,
1: this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Canis Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And
2: Storage King.
1: The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic!
2: Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Danderen shortly and of course our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now last week I mentioned off the top of the show that the afterglow of qualification for the Men's World Cup had started to fade, but for one man he has every right for it to be sitting like a self-satisfied shimmer in his belly, one who defied the critics to drag the Socceroos from what looked like a failed qualifying campaign through a treacherous two-game stretch and achieve the goal of qualifying for a fifth straight World Cup in Qatar later this year. That man, of course, is national coach Graham Arnold, who joins us on the show to debrief on the journey and plans for the big dance later on this year. After that, Soccer is Matilda Central with Willem, where we'll look at the past week for both sides, which are clearly on different trajectories. Then we'll expand on the Matildas and the direction Tony Gustafsson scored is heading after their underwhelming Iberian tour, with someone who has an intimate knowledge of the women's game and an acute tactical football eye to boot from ESPN and The Guardian. Joey Lynch and of course we'll wrap it up with everything else in Stoppage Time with Derek. So Edge, um, looking forward to chatting with Arnie. Last time uh, you spoke to him was uh, was on the, the pitch after uh, the Peru game. You sent us a photo with your arm around him uh, and we're all friends but uh, mate, um, how, how would he be feeling right now just relaxing uh, back home in Sydney?
3: I think he'd be decompressing. He's been in, uh, under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, that whole Uh, campaign, which we've talked about extensively on Box to Box over the last couple of uh, episodes. But yeah, he'd be decompressing. I think he needs a a break. You know, um, a lot of people probably wouldn't know how much time he spent away from his own family. Um, It's an opportunity for him to reset and uh, start to to consider his plans in greater detail, because the next stage of um, this journey for Graham is going to be important as the players go back to their clubs and uh, well, they're already back at their clubs assembled in pre-season as they start to uh, get themselves organized. Let's not forget about the pressure on the players, the the travel and the extra time and commitment and sacrifice. I think Jackson Irvine, who we spoke to on the show last week, only had five days uh, at home with his family before he had to report back to St. Pauli for pre-season, um, you know, they're big sacrifices these players have made. Uh, and, um, yeah, we're just all enjoying the afterglow, but um, no doubt there's some sore bodies and uh, time to to reset, let alone jet lag and all the other things that uh, football professional footballers who play for the Socceroos have to come back with.
2: Yeah, exactly. All right, well, then you've got it all... For us, mate, um, where are you going to start?
1: Going to start with the Matildas. Rob, bit of a shoddy odd week for them. The path to World Cup glory on home soil has taken another big detour. 7-0 loss to Spain, 1-0 draw with Portugal. That first loss was, uh, was their heaviest defeat in 25 years, I believe. Tony Gustafsson had some interesting comments after that loss. He said he was surprised. People are surprised with the state of the side, which was once again composed of largely inexperienced players. Positive news, Michael. We do need to touch on Lydia Williams who uh, received her 100th cap or earned her 100th cap, I should say, in the draw with Portugal, uh, a great contributor to the Australian women's game and the Matildas over more than 17 years. Uh, but sad news though, the loss of Taylor A to a uh, to a long-term knee injury has uh, compounded these results. Joey Lynch has got some uh, insightful things to say later on, as he always does. But before we get there, Edge, what did you make uh, or what have you made so far of Gustafson's 24-game reign? Probably not going as well as
3: we would have liked. Um and- considering the underperformance at the Asian Cup. That was the big, uh, the big problem. And some of the heavy defeats to European nations have been concerning. Um, look, um, I wasn't surprised with those results, not at all. Um, I think uh, they were to be expected. What I am surprised at is that I am surprised, that Tony is surprised that uh, people in Australia have reacted <laughs> the way that they have to these results. And uh, nobody likes to see a national team get uh, slaughtered 7-0. Um, when you're playing um, against another national team, I think that's a big concern. Look, um, there's lots to unpack out of this. We'll unpack it with Joey, but my immediate uh, thoughts are really for Taylor Ray, who I've um, met a couple of times, and she's just a super person. And uh, for a young girl who's made her way in A-League women's football and was the metronome for Sydney FC and their... their premier's plate uh, success uh, this year. Um, yeah, I really feel for her because 12 months on the sideline, uh, recovering from an ACL, yeah, it's, it's no fun. But um, yeah, the, obviously the highs have been selected in the Matildas and the potential of getting your first minutes through to the lows of uh, long-term injury. So that's uh, uh, elite sport at its best and at its darkest.
1: Rob, good news for the women's game this week. The A-League women's is going to be a 12-team home-and-away competition by 2023-24 with Western United and Central Coast to join over the next two years. The expansion will see the number of total matches for the whole league that is almost double from 70 to 132, with the minutes on offer for each individual player to reach the global benchmark of 1,980. And then they can play some finals as well if their side's good enough. This year, we're going to have a 20-round competition which features Western United, so they're going to come in as the new side. That starts on November 18 with a grand final in the last week of April. So, Rob... Uh, Michael has sort of kept us across this for a while and it has been brewing for some time. Um, but fair play to the APL here. They do cop, the, they do cop a whack from, from now and then. They've taken on the big job and we'll chat about the broadcast rights later on. But they did take over this league uh, as a competition that had had expansion for six to seven years, I, I believe, uh, following sort of Melbourne City in 2015. So uh, for them to have grown it so, so greatly over 18 months
2: is commendable, I think. Yeah, no, fair point. And, um, you know, Danny Townsend uh, who is, uh, of course, the APL chief executive, said we want this to be a top ten women's football league around the world, and, uh, and you know, and we'll talk uh, more about Tony Gustafson later in the show, and, and some of his comments about development and uh, and uh, and pathways and and the level of depth that we have uh, in the in his case, the women's game in this country. So, um, so as much as we uh, we hand out the brickbats uh, where they're earned, uh, we've got to acknowledge and 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 give the bowcase um, uh, as we we see the the kind of expansion that. Um, that we've been talking about for a long, long time. So, uh, the uh, you know, the, I was talking to a dad uh, only this week of of a, of a rising um, star Matilda in the junior pathways, and and you know, he he was excited to hear this news as as a parent. So, um, if that represents the general prevailing view of of people who are in the game and passionate about the game, then it's uh, a great sign. And as we approach this first hopefully COVID uninterrupted season in many years you know, the timing really probably couldn't be better.
1: Graham Arnold's wish has been granted. The A-League competition is going to kick off on October 7th before a three-week World Cup hiatus from November 18. The earlier start also means the season uh, can pause for other international breaks throughout the campaign with the grand final again to be played on the last weekend of May. So, Michael, we should get six to seven rounds in at least before the World Cup, plus uh, some Australia Cup action, which we'll discuss in a, in a second. So, uh, they probably... Couldn't have started it any earlier, as we discussed last week, with the finals for the other uh, winter codes uh, finishing up commercially. You probably don't want to kick off uh, when other codes are in the thick of that. But October 7, really, I think that's where the A-League men should start going forward.
3: Yeah, out of the current calendar arrangements, absolutely. And there's been a lot of work in that domestic calendar to fit with FIFA calendars and international windows to ensure there's the maximum Um, opportunity for national teams, but also A-League teams not being diluted uh, for various reasons, uh, both in the men's and women's games. So, yeah, it's not an easy thing to put together.
1: Final story on domestic matters before we cast our eye overseas. The Australia Cup round of 32 draw has been conducted. Holders Melbourne victory are going to meet A-League champions Western United in the first round. Go burgers. Go the burgers. We'll get to that. For the first time in the current era, uh, all 32 sides were placed in the one pot. So we've had an open draw. So they've taken out the sort of fixed mechanisms, which is good for the purists, I suppose. In a strange quirk of the draw, though, Rob, none of the seven sides in the final rounds for the first time have been drawn against A-League opposition. So there you go. Good chance for all of them to get through to the last 16. Uh, we'll go through a couple of the extra, uh, the other big fixtures, uh, Rob. So Adelaide United, the most successful uh, side in the competition, have drawn the Jets uh, who uh, qualifies, and the final will be held on October one. So, what do you make of that? The fact that we'll be wrapped up with the cup before the uh, the league season begins.
2: Oh, that's okay. I like those quirks of draws. I mean, it is a draw, and uh, every now and then you get these uh, fortunate twists where it sort of guarantees that um, that, the, that the tier two and lower clubs are going to get a genuine chance to to advance. So uh, uh, it gets the spotlight entirely on on that competition. So, yeah, personally, not a problem with it. And Edge, Charlie Austin, and Brisbane Raw at Olympic Village.
3: Absolutely, I give the Burgers a big chance in this game because it's very early in the preseason campaign for. Brisbane Roar, they probably won't have uh, their recruits there in time. They'll probably have a younger team. So I think the burgers, uh, I think get out to Olympic Village, get yourself lucky and see a cup set. It's brewing. It is brewing.
1: It is brewing. (laughs) They've got a shocking record in the cup as well, Brisbane Roar. So yeah, if there's going to be any side to do it, it might just be the burgers. Uh, The women's Euros, guys, we probably haven't discussed it as much as we should. It kicks off next Thursday morning Australian time with hosts England to play Austria at Old Trafford. They're two-time runners up England. They've never won it. Uh, they're being touted as the favourites alongside Spain, who have also never won it. Uh, from the 13 editions, we've actually only had four winners, Sweden and the Dutch once, Norway twice, and Germany eight times, if you don't mind. Northern Ireland are the only nation in the 16 uh, who are going to be making their debuts here, Michael. So uh, matches, not the friendliest of times for uh, for us here in Australia, 2 and 5 uh, a.m. if you're on the Eastern Seaboard, but it's still a tournament that we will be uh, giving it to over the next month or so.
3: Massive tournament. Don't forget it in the French Women's Cup, seven of the eight quarter finalists were European nations. Uh, Obviously the other one being the USA. Um, So it is uh, the heart and uh, soul of of, uh, women's uh, international football. It'll be big and a big challenge for England. Huge challenge. They need to do really well in this tournament.
1: They're primed, aren't they, with the experience they've got?
3: Well, they are, but they've underperformed in recent uh, editions of this event, so um, the pressure will be on them and I think we'll get a good um, gauge for who's going to be the red hot teams out of Europe for the World Cup for obvious reasons. It's only, uh, you, know, you know, World Cup cycle. This is a huge, um, huge event for, for Europe teams um, preparing, obviously.
1: And a bit of news out of the States before we welcome in Arnie, Gareth Bale has settled on a new home ahead of the Qatar World Cup, not Cardiff City, it's going to be Los Angeles FC in the MLS. Uh, he's declared LA is the right place for he and his family at this point in his career, so good luck to you there, Gareth, and he's going to get plenty of football. The season started in March and runs right through to October, followed by the playoffs and considering LA a top of their conference, there's a good chance that he'll have football right up until the 5th of November. And... To- Finnish North Carolina Courage defender Carson Pickett has become the first player with a limb difference to play for the U.S. women's side. She made her debut in the 2-0 friendly win over Columbia this week. She was born without part of her left arm, uh, but has ascended to what is really one of the more famed national teams in the world, the U.S. women's side. Uh, she's played 100 games in the domestic league there and was named in the NWSL's June Team of the Month. Rob,
2: after the break, uh, we've been looking forward to this chat for a little while since we last spoke to him. Lots has happened for the great Graham Arnold, Goaler Gaimani himself. He's got us into the World Cup. He's standing by to have a chat to us about that qualification and the road ahead. Stick around. Next on Box to Box, Graham Arnold.
4: Box to Box. Can you- For Chemist Warehouse.
1: Home of real brands and real savings.
2: And Storage King.
1: The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of
2: all. Yes, this is box to box. Now, last week I mentioned off the top of the show that the afterglow of qualification for the men's World cup had started to fade. But as we know, there is one man who has got every right to be sitting back with a self-satisfied Glow himself, he defied the critics and uh, effectively dragged the Socceroos through a treacherous two-game stretch in Qatar to qualify the Socceroos for the World Cup in that same nation later on in the year. And his name's Graham Arnold. How are you, Arnie?
0: I'm great. How are you, mate?
2: We're all the better for uh, for knowing that um, the sliding doors moment of Qatar <laughs> not working out uh, didn't happen, mate. Um, but yeah, as I say, congratulations. Um, you know, but before we get to the the road ahead, just just tell us what it means to you and your family. You're just the second Australian manager to qualify the national men's side for a World Cup. Um, after all, you gave to the cause as a a player and have given as a player and coach over the last three and a half decades.
0: Yeah, look, it's uh, you know, it's two weeks, to just over two weeks uh, uh, since the game, and you can sit back and reflect a little bit more now that. Uh, and what we what we have achieved, I do believe that it was the hardest pathway that uh, the soccerers have ever been through to qualify for a World Cup. Um, you know, obviously with COVID, and you know, I, I can talk about the negativity of COVID and and, and those type of things. Uh, but you know, it was you know on the players. So I'm just so proud of the players and so happy for the players because the sacrifices that they gave to to get us not. Just to the World Cup, but also to get us through the campaign, I used, I had to use forty-five players just in the third phase um, mm-hmm. to get us through just to the end of those qualifiers. You know, when you look at a normal World Cup qualifying <clears throat> program, it, it, it normally spans over roughly seven hundred days. Um, where this one went per thousand, and I think a thousand seventy days. And, uh, and then we had to, you know, if I look back now today, this today, a year ago, I was flying into Japan, into Tokyo for the Olympics. And then, <clears throat> you know, and you think back, geez, that's only a year ago. It seems like that two or three years ago when you look at what, you know, what we had to go through after that. And as I said, the boys, their commitment to, as I said, just to get the, get through, uh, the, the campaign was 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 first class, and you know a lot of them were getting pressure from their clubs not to go and play for play for Australia. And if they did, and they brought COVID back, then they would be uh, dropped completely out of the squad, or wouldn't get uh, paid for the amount of time that they couldn't play in the first team. And, and there was a lot of that going on. And uh, as I said, it was uh, it was tiring, uh, it was challenging, but uh, in the end, the universe paid us back for all the, the the commitment that the boys gave.
2: Yeah, it sure did. And, and in those two, two matches against uh, uh, the UAE and Peru, the Socceroos from our uh, outside uh, um, observances looked the side in the ascendancy. You, you looked mm. like you were the side more willing to, to write your own script rather than wait for uh, what was about to happen. Can, can you sum up the, the mood inside the camp across those two weeks?
0: Yeah, look, Robert, you know, I had... Um... It was the first time I coached them since November, because I uh, I had COVID in uh, Melbourne. Um, I missed the Vietnam game, you know. So you, you, I missed five days of the camp. I went in on the sixth, and they had to do an active recovery on the seventh, and basically played on the eighth or the ninth. And and the same with the Japan game. Um, I went in. I, I got into camp because I tested positive seven weeks after. So it wasn't. It was a, more of a false positive. Uh, but I couldn't go into camp because of the AFC's rulings. Uh, and I got into camp on match day against Japan at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. So I really didn't uh, coach the team for, since November. And the fact that, you know, before um, you know, the, the, the two main games, UAE and Peru, were over in the Middle East, and I was able to get the players together 10 days before. And Jordan was the first friendly game. That we had since Timmy Cahill's retirement against Lebanon, and here in Sydney in 2018, and to be able to experiment with things, and you know, you know, at the same time uh, with no minimal risk, and and put the players on the park and work with them at training and and work on those details. That uh, you know, it set us up perfectly for for the the, the two games against UAE and Peru and. You know, being, I'm a type of coach and manager that is, I'm more of a man manager but more I'm, I'm sorry, more of a man manager, of face-to-face conversations and and you know, understanding how the players are feeling mentally and 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 you know, the toll it takes on families uh, and everything to make sure that uh, the boys were right. So to walk into camp, into uh, uh, initially in Dubai where we could work Aaron Moy and some players who had finished early and then go across to Qatar and have, you know, a bit more time to work with the boys before the uh, Jordan game. And the Jordan game ended up being like the perfect type of preparation game for us um, was was fantastic. And, uh, you know, sitting down and being able to have meetings with the blows uh, individually and, and to get to, to understand how they are mentally was, was uh, what we needed.
3: There's no doubt this World Cup qualification has been the most difficult that Australia's faced uh, in our history of qualifying for the World Cup, no doubt about it. Um, uh, I bumped into you after the China game in Dubai and uh, I actually remember talking to Rob off uh, off air about this, just um, wondering how um, a coach goes through, in, in, in the context of a international campaign, it's not like a club where if you lose a game or you draw a game, you have uh, next week to get back on the horse straight away and do something about it. You've got uh, long breaks between games and... Just who do you turn to to remain positive? Because it, it struck me after the China game, which was obviously a disappointing draw. After we uh, were in a, yeah. in a strong position in that game, um, who, who do you turn to to re-energize your positivity, positivity battery? And uh, because they are they are emotional uh, results. Those those types of things. We had the highs of the, the record wins in a row, um, and yeah. then obviously some. Some low points too in the campaign, but who do you turn to to keep uh, energised?
0: Yeah, look, I think uh, <clears throat> family first and foremost, um, because you know families uh, always supportive, whether you win or lose, um, and and good mates, um, you know that know the football world. You know it's, uh, and but also at the same time, you know you've got to reflect on yourself and look in the mirror first and foremost, and and. You know, be critical of yourself, but also making sure that, you know, we covered every detail. And when I look back at <clears throat> the China game and even the Oman game, you know, we're, we're clearly the better team for most of the game. And then, you know, stupid penalties. We gave away two two silly penalties. And you know, I don't know if I've been in the campaign before. We were, you know, we give away three penalties in 10 games. And, and those three penalties cost us probably, and, you know, a good six points. Um, so... You know, it's, it's more about the belief in yourself, but uh, the conversations you have with staff, family, mates, close mates, uh, and and just making sure that, uh, as I said, that we, we cover all bases. And on the staff side of it, René Mullins, day, my assistant, is just an amazing guy, but also he's had so many amazing experiences at Manchester United um, that in big moments, he's, he's, that's when he's really valuable um and just making sure that i stay positive because i don't i really don't care you know what people think outside of that um i don't do social media i hardly read read really any australian media um and when people tell me what's been said i'm like well long as i i'm happy to take the battering if they leave the boys alone because the boys are the ones that have to play the game and the boys are the ones that have to keep the belief going and uh and making sure that they're
3: mentally fine. Uh, I must admit, I do have a giggle from time to time, Arnie, When uh, I think uh, in one of the penalty uh, penalty shootouts, uh, or the, one of the penalties in the Allaroo's, I saw you hiding behind the coach's box, couldn't watch one of them, and um, yeah, I couldn't yeah. actually see. I couldn't actually see you when uh, when the penalty shootout was on against Peru. But were you watching, or were you watching no. some and not watching others? No, I uh,
0: I sat down on the bench and just. Over to you, boys. <laughs> you know that's that's the, so that's the type of thing. Well, but the most important thing, Michael, is we, you know, is your planning and preparation. So before the UAE, we practiced penalties. Uh, day three, match day minus three, yeah. match day minus one in the stadium, and we made them. You know, we did a drill in the middle uh, center circle, um, and they practice a walk down to the end that the penalties were going to be taken. And, you know, Rene was down the far end. Uh, he's, he was controlling that. Um, and he gave some really good detail to the boys. Like, for example, if the goalkeeper is it's, it's time-wasting, and you know, or the referee uh, is talking to the goalkeeper, or whatever, you know, and you've addressed the ball and you're standing waiting, don't do that. Go and readdress the ball and start again. Because sometimes the players can be standing there waiting too long <clears throat> before they take their penalty. And if you look at it back at our penalty uh takers, I think Jamie McLaren and uh Awen McBill had to do that. And they went back, they readdressed. And then uh, you know, Renee uh, he took control of, of, of the penalty shootout training. And um, you know, we we had our penalty takers in mind. I know that people are probably thinking about, you know, why did we bring Craig Goodwin on so late and the substitutions that we made were later. And that was around the fact that if we did go to penalties. We needed our best penalty takers on the pitch at that time. And uh, that's where we brought Craig Goodwin on to play left back uh, for Aziz And, uh, you know, Craig, uh, his first touch of the ball was his penalty. So it was more about um, making sure that we, we, we got that detail right. But all that was planned uh, before the game, where I, I do believe, I do think, when I looked at uh, Peru um, and their coaching staff and the players, they hadn't planned for a penalty shootout, and you could see it was quite chaotic. Uh, they were trying to get the penalty sh- uh, takers, and you know who wanted to take the penalty, you know, write them down. We already had it planned, and that was the most. Yeah, I think that one. was
3: fairly obvious to me in the stadium as well. Um, I was watching yeah. the last four or five minutes of uh, uh, second period of extra time, and uh, the Peru guys were, yeah, they were in uh, all sorts of uh, yeah. discussions trying to work out who was going to take the sh- take the penalties. I-, I thought that was a. A a big, um, a big issue for them to to manage, and um, a lot's been talked about uh, the fact that we, you know, our home away from home is Doha, and how terrific the Qatari uh, Football Association and also the Qatari um, government and and people like Tim Cahill and so forth, all the people that have helped you. It it, it has been a remarkable um, home away from home for us, and really did play a big role in uh, at least making sure the plays were comfortable and prepared as best they could be for this match?
0: Yeah, look, and uh, Michael, it was uh, everything happens for a reason. And I don't know why, but right at the start of the campaign, you know, when COVID was obviously uh, in Australia heavily and all the lockouts and, and you know, blocked flights and we couldn't get back into Australia, um, you know, the first thing that came clear to me when I was in Dubai on my own after the Olympics was we've got to play in Qatar, in an air-conditioned stadium. And, you know, and obviously I had the conversations with James Johnson and and the organization, and James was fantastic in supporting that and then getting Timmy to help us with that. And, you know, and we played our first two games in Qatar in an air-conditioned stadium, and the boys actually loved it. It was like, it was only six hours travel from Europe, two hours time difference, pitch was amazing. The air conditioning, you've experienced it, is incredible. And uh, so, it was something that, you know, as I said, right at the start, when we couldn't get back into Australia, we said, okay, where are we going to play? And we talked about, you know, maybe playing in South Korea or in Japan uh, or because it was too hot in the Middle East. And then, I don't know, I just I just come up with this idea that, you know, whether that, you know, I thought it would be great just to play in Qatar in air-conditioned stadium. And as it's worked out, we've had five games in Qatar and five wins in the air-conditioned stadium. So. I do believe moving forward that that's going to be a great benefit for us. Um, you know, it's going to be a short preparation for this uh, for the World Cup in Qatar, uh, seven days basically, and uh, we're going to have this wonderful experience of being there before, done it before, and 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 playing in those stadiums. So it's, uh, I think it holds us in really good stead. The
2: group that Australia has. Uh... Uh, it features, of course, the defending World Cup champions and Euro quarterfinalists. Uh, the 2018 World Cup means there's a fair bit of familiarity around the assignment with France and Denmark, and of course, Tunisia. Uh, you yep. were in the stands in in Russia. Um, you know we, yep. you've got your squad largely formalised. There's blokes like Tom Rogic um, who there's still not a news, lot of accurate news about um, why he wasn't in Doha. Will he be in the squad? Um, so looking ahead um, to to the tournament and preparation, every superstar as well. Don't forget the big Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now look, it's now um, you know it's a matter of sitting back now at the moment and, and waiting for the competitions to start. It's fantastic. The A League. Um, uh, the APL is, uh, you know, uh, uh, reacted as well, and they're moving the start of the competition forward by a couple of weeks, so the boys can, so I can pick boys on performance rather than, um, you know, on 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 the past, uh, on on how they were playing. So now it's, you know, it's for me. You know, I went to Russia and to watch the games, and I honestly felt that we went out trying not to lose, and. I've never wanted to coach that way, and I don't coach that way. Uh, I, I truly believe that those bigger nations are more vulnerable right at the start of the, uh, of, the of the World Cup. You know, they're looking, for example, France. They're not looking at game one, two, three. They're looking at, at semi-finals and finals. Uh, and and it's an opportunity for us to go out and uh, take it to them and 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 put on our great a great performance. People call this a... You know, a, a group of death we're in. Well, I don't agree. I think it's a group of opportunity, and uh, it's a, a it's not a great opportunity for the our players to, to really step up and show what we, you know, what our values and our strengths are. And if there's one thing that you know, as I said at the start about COVID, that really, if I turn it into a positive way, and that's not me testing positive in a positive way, is uh, it's it's really built the team morale and spirit because. You know, for uh, for all that campaign except for Qatar, the boys were stuck on the same floor, and the boys weren't allowed to go out the hotel. The boys uh, had a social room that they had to sit and really communicate and 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 you know and really you know become real good mates and, and like brothers. And I think if anything, yeah. it's really helped our culture a, a real lot. And I I believe that you know that what you saw in in uh, against the UAE. And against Peru, is they would they would go on the pitch, the old Aussie DNA way, go on the pitch, kick, fight, and scratch, and uh, and and die for each other. And I think that will hold us in, as I said, uh, in really good stead moving forward. Mate, we'll we'll look forward to talking to you over the, over the
2: months ahead, and uh, and look forward to, to the the event in Qatar.
0: Yeah, and I want to thank you for your support and everything. It's uh, as I said, it's been a a challenging you know a couple of years but uh you know just to to finish off that we did it was uh it's just amazing and it's, uh exciting times ahead now Yeah, incredible, Graham Arnold, uh,
2: champion uh, manager of the uh, Socceroos. They go into the World Cup in Qatar, and we're all going to be enjoying that. Okay, stick around. Next on Box to Box, we're going to talk more Socceroos and Matildas with Willem. Um, There's a lot more to to dig into. Obviously, the trajectory of the Matildas not going so uh, well uh, right now. But hey, you know the pendulum hopefully will shift um, between now and uh, and twelve months' time. As it obviously did for the Socceroos. Stick around. That's all next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse.
1: Home of real brands and real savings.
2: And Storage King.
1: The kings of storage, moving and more. And this
5: could be the most crucial goal of
2: all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We're talking more Socceroos and Matildas uh, next. We've talked to Graham Arnold. We'll talk to Joey Lynch soon about the Matildas. But uh, before we do, make sure you get your half price off the Nature's Own Vitamins range, yes, you've heard it at Chemist Warehouse, There's Nature's Own Glucosamine. Oh, nice tune in there from uh, Edge. Sulfate, 400 tablets for just $20.99. Nature's Own Complete Sleep Advance, 60 tablets for $21.49. Edge, did you get those to, to help you um, snooze? Oh, I need them, Rob.
3: I had to get yeah. up very early this morning for you.
1: World's well, uh, busiest, so he doesn't sleep. sleep.
3: Come I'm on this get
2: uh, True. podcast, uh, get out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning. How committed am I? You, you are, I'm, 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 As Damo said, world's well, busiest bloke. Chemist um, Warehouse product in my kit. Yeah, well, when I yeah. expand to the Middle East, mate, you'll be their uh, ambassador. And while you're at Chemist Warehouse getting your nature's own sleep advanced, you can also stock up on Robitussin Chesty Cough. Willem, it's a bit chilly here in Melbourne. 250 mils, just eight I'm sure you've got that on the shelf.
1: Yes, I don't have the Chesty Cough because I do have it on the shelf.
2: Well done. Very good answer there, Willem. Advil Minis liquid, 90 capsules, sixteen ninety nine each, and 16 complete preservative free eye drops for twenty two ninety nine. We all know where you get it. Yes, you do. You get it at Chemist Warehouse, where the great savings are uh, every single day, Willem. Um, so we talked to Arnie just now. Um, good news, bad news in the world of uh, international football for the Australian men and women.
1: Yeah, but still some good news for individual players uh, and what they're doing with their club careers. Robert is Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Packages are on sale now for the 2022 Qatar World Cup, which feature 13 nights accommodation in Doha's official Socceroos fan base. You'll also head to a Socceroos training session as well as a guaranteed ticket for all three games, three famous Green and Gold Army pregame events and a number of cultural experiences of your choosing. Michael, we had you on last week and you were going bing, bing on your computer. How have the sales... Uh, been flying in via, of course, GGAtravel.com.au. Yeah, they're going well and uh, still plenty of availability. And um, it's a big
3: week ahead with uh, tickets being released to Soccer East fans uh, through a pre-registration. So uh, those people who've got football family, make sure you've uh, picked up your email and pre-register and get yourself over to Qatar. It's going to be a fantastic event. Uh, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, we're obviously looking forward to... Um, all three games. But I'm looking forward to the Australia match versus Tunisia, Rob, because 300,000 Tunisians live in Doha. And I've heard mm. that uh, other than the tickets available for uh, the pre-registration for Socceroos fans because of our late qualification, it is sold out already. So uh, yeah. won't that be a big, big, big match, uh, Australia Itch. and Tunisia? Make sure you come along yeah. to the Green and Gold yeah. Army Tour and you'll be in the stands
2: yeah. for that one you better uh, make sure you, you snag a few uh, of the uh, the tickets from whatever sources you've got because uh, if, if well, the, the common sources are' Good. Well, I heard you did, actually. But if you if you compare that to the, the 200 Peruvians who uh, were said to live in Doha, then, mate, we're in for a world of pain.
1: Big news off the top this week. Mary Fowler, four-year deal with Manchester City, if you don't mind. Link up, of course, with Matilda's teammates, Alana Kennedy and Hayley Rasser, to help her settle in there. City coach Gareth Taylor has described Mary as, without doubt, one of the most exciting young talents in the game right now. They are absolutely thrilled to have her join them. Michael Howe. How beneficial is this? We know of the standard of French women's football when we speak about Ellie Carpenter and Lyon and PSG who are hot on their heels. But for Montpellier, where she was previously and and the sides below that, uh, considering where where those sides sit, how big a jump is this?
3: Well, it's obviously a big jump financially for Mary and her family, no doubt about that. So congratulations to the Fowler family and to Mary, who deserves every cent she gets through her football because she's been one of the most committed Um, young elite uh, talent that Australia's ever seen, no doubt about it. So uh, giving up Montpellier to live in Manchester, the weather won't be as good as Montpellier, that's for sure, but um, she will get uh, an incredible environment to... Develop uh, her craft and uh, hopefully reach the potential that uh, so many of us think that she has the capacity to achieve. And uh, if Mary isn't developing into one of the world's most uh, significant women's footballers over the next four years, I think this is a great place to do it. Uh, Manchester City are looking to break into uh, the upper echelons of uh, women's football clubs, and I, I think. Uh, Mary's in a, in a fantastic environment to do that. So congratulations. Um, Personally, knowing the family like I do and uh, knowing Mary like I do, um, I'm personally uh, so happy for them. And um, I hope that uh, she's getting every cent that she deserves and she develops into one of the prime movers in women's football and takes us a long way uh, in the next uh, two or three World Cups.
1: Congratulations as well to Ali Carpenter, a contract extension this week, which is, I suppose, a tip of the hat to the work that she's done when she's been fit, that they're going to back her in uh, through her recovery from that knee injury. To the Socceroos, Alma Bill, one that, we, uh, that I neglected to discuss last week. He signed a four-year deal as well with Cadiz in La Liga that ends his almost eight years association finally. Uh, with and Cadiz, they've been a mid-table side in the two seasons since their promotion to the Spanish top flight, 12th and 17th, Uh, they've finished. Now, Rob, I'm going to throw you a question without notice. I won't throw it to Michael because I know he doesn't like these, but the last Australian to play in La Liga was Matt Ryan, but the last outfielder...
2: It would have been John Aloisi, wouldn't it?
1: Bang. Bang. Mm -hmm. That's why I threw to you, Rob. Thank you exceptional uh two-year contract extension as well for bailey wright which is brilliant at sunderland we know he's done the hard graft uh down in league one over the past couple of campaigns so he's going to be around to help them establish themselves in the championship uh and an update this week from stoke city boss martin o'neill on harry Sutar. uh edge harry was over with you in doha uh he was injured but he flew over to help out the kit staff i believe get the uh get the kits ready for the Socceroos. so he is uh, he's very much uh invested in the Socceroos family uh, he's apparently been doing everything he possibly can to get back from that knee reconstruction, and he's a couple of a uh, couple of weeks off from returning to the grass, as they've called it. So if he doesn't make it to the line, uh, certainly won't be for uh, lack of trying. Yeah, wouldn't it be great to have him back in the in the
3: lineup? Um, just on Bailey Wright, you, you mentioned him earlier getting a two-year extension in Sunderland. I mean, when we when when the team got together for these uh, two intercontinental playoff matches, uh, UAE and Peru, um, Sainsbury was really. Very little chance of playing. They brought him into camp, but uh, Trent's been a big part of the the lineup. Uh, obviously, Harry Sutars missing. Uh, Kai Rolls was there, and uh, they needed an old head just to help us through. And Bailey Wright, you are a star, man. You 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 came out of that uh, competition in England, and you put everything on the line for the Socceroos, and you performed really really well. And um, he is just a first-rate professional, Bailey. And if you see his attitude and how he gets around the place. I mean, I'm so happy that uh, his football career is continuing at a big club. And I hope every Sunderland fan appreciates uh, how good a bloke this bloke is. He's a very good person. And I just wanted to say all that because I love Bailey.
1: Well said, well said. Now, we all love Bailey. Uh, and Musket Watch is, of course, on in earnest. Yokohama F Marinos remain three points clear atop the J-League. They had a big win this week over Kashiwa reysol four goals, 2-0. Uh, and they can also focus their entire attention on the league because they dropped uh, a match in the Emperor's Cup to Tochigi SC. But never mind that. This Saturday, they've got Shimizu. And then on Wednesday, they've got Sanfrecce Hiroshima. Second place to Kashima play Kashiwa reysol and Suizo Osaka this week. So we will keep you up to date with how Musky and Yokohama okahama track as they head towards the title moving on to the AWF women's championship michael you're going to have to help us out here uh and tell us where this fits in the football framework mel andretta we know is uh, going to be the coach and she's named her under 23 representative side they're going to play the philippines thailand indonesia singapore and malaysia across the next month so what does this tournament mean um, well, it's an emerging sort of age group for um, international football. So it's an important
3: one because so many uh, international footballers in women's uh, are younger than obviously um, the men's game. But um, there is some murmurings um, around uh, the corridors of FIFA that maybe this is the age group that can uh, take the flagship uh, in the Olympic competition moving forward like they do with the men because of the significance of the Women's World Cup, uh, you know, the, the continued growth in them and uh, commercial value of that. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very important age group, but it, it's continuing to foster and develop. And the... And the Asian Football Federation, the Southeast Asian people. It's very important politically to Australia that we um, support their tournaments um, in that part of the world. We are um, a block of nations that uh, that try and uh, work together for the advancement of the game uh, in the in that region and offset the you know the commercial and um, financial firepower of the Middle East. So um, it's important we do support it, and it's important that. Uh, the under 23 women or the you know these emerging matildas effectively and don't forget there's a lot of under 23 players in europe who are employing their trade in scandinavia who can't uh, who are not available for this uh, squad. So it's a bit of a mixed match of what's going on. But it's important we go there and uh, they get experience. And I think they'll get a, a, some good experience against uh, some of the senior teams like Philippines and Thailand, for example. So, yeah, I, I think it's really important. It's a good development opportunity. But more importantly for the sport and our position in uh, in the Asian Confederation more broadly, it's very important we uh,
1: we take a leading role in these events. Couple of other tidbits from around the Australian game. Bit of news this week out of Paramount Plus, Rob. Paramount, Australia, New Zealand's head of streaming uh, has promised big things ahead of the second season of their five year broadcast deal. We are in line supposedly for a full uh, roadmap of enhanced features and functionality for sport, which was of course one of the issues with Paramount being a, a television and movie streaming service, not a live sports service. So apparently they're going to tighten that up there. Uh, we're going to have a sports hub Personalised homepage presentation, improved navigation, and more. So you'd hope that improved navigation uh, does include that pesky
2: pause and rewind function. Yep, yeah, you'd hope so, uh, Willem. And um, as you know, close listeners to Box to Box will. Be well aware. Edge uh, runs the green and gold army outside of uh, doing this podcast, so that's his uh, uh, profession uh, outside of, of of the show. But mine, uh, I run an advertising agency and uh, get a lot of trade based information. Uh, this information, you know, it might not necessarily be published in a mainstream magazine, but uh, came through via Umbrella, where a couple of uh, Channel Ten Paramount Plus executives were were interviewed: uh, Liz Baldwin, the senior vice president head of streaming, and uh, Nick Bauer, who is the uh, the director of sales and sports so sometimes you need to filter through the jargon when you when you're reading these articles and uh, and that you know the reality that some of the information you read is is uh, publicity but the fact of the matter, as you say, Willem, is that uh, they, they're investing a lot into football in, the, in this country. Uh, uh, they say that the A-League is a cornerstone of, of their strategy and that uh, their long-term vested interest into it underscores that. So you know, the point you're making about the enhanced functionality, I know this might seem like a little thing, but uh, for those of us who have Paramount+, Plus, you know, sometimes you've got to find the sport. On, on the on the site. Uh, they've, they've now made sure that there's a permanent menu bar, a small thing, but uh, improves the accessibility. And, and they go on to talk about the, uh, you know, the, the fact that they're supported by a, a global live streaming operation. And that, uh, as you said, a, a television production company uh, hosting sport, they're, they're learning along the way and introducing a, a lot of tech to to improve it as uh, as things go forward. So look, we talked for a long time about uh, Foxtel and uh, the fact that they dropped the ball uh, on football and, and then we wondered for a long, long time uh, where football was going to land. Um, we've criticised Paramount Plus, and rightfully so, for uh, the uh, the early days of, of the of the tech that uh, um, was incorporated into the app, but. Uh, But now they're improving, as Optus did uh, all those years ago, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, there's there's brighter days ahead. And just
1: finally, big changes across Melbourne, Victory's front line already under Tony Popovich. He's going to bring back one of his former charges, Tommy Urich, on a one-year deal. Tommy, of course, didn't have a great season at MacArthur, just the eight appearances since coming home. Uh, He might be joined by what would be a huge signing for uh, for the entire league and for Victory, Nanny. Uh Cristiano Ronaldo's old offsider at Manchester United and Portugal. Uh he's available on a free after finishing up at Venezia. So that would be huge news. Let's hope that, that can come across Uh, Over the past week, Rob, um, Marco Rojas out the door. He's headed to Chile most likely. Uh, And I mean, you'd suspect that Ben Falami and Nick D'Agostino probably won't be there uh, come the end of the season. So despite Tony Popovich's first season being seen as perhaps a work in progress, uh, things never stand still for too long. And with Jason Davidson out the door,
2: uh, already a bit of a restructure going on. Yeah, exactly. And, um, fair play to Tony Popovich. I mean, he overachieved in, in season one with, with victory, uh, um, could quite easily have, have won everything, uh, on, on, uh, the trajectory that they were going. So, uh, if he deems it's right to, to move some players on, uh, uh players who've contributed a lot, then, uh, yeah, I, I'm not prepared to criticize him. Uh, we need to uh, see uh, the victory as we do some of the, uh, all the big clubs, but, uh, but, you know, victory needs to be, uh, a strong presence in the A-League. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, who they replace those players with. Uh, back to you, Robin. and we're in Joey Lynch. Absolutely. Well done, Okay. Well done. Um, looking forward to uh, this yarn coming up with, with Joey. Uh, whilst it was all positive and uh, a big love fest with Arnie before, I'm not so sure that it's going to be the same case with uh, Joey as we uh, delve into the details of what's going on uh, Matilda-style, uh, particularly off the back of the uh, the Spain and Portugal match match. <laughs> matches stick around that's all next on box to box
1: box to box can you
2: believe it for chemist warehouse
1: home of real brands and real savings
2: and storage
1: king the kings of storage moving and more and this could be the most crucial goal of all
2: yes this is box to box and uh over the last several years there's been no question about the uh, the stature that our uh, Australian women's team, the Matildas, hold in the hearts of Australians generally, um, as well as uh, sports fans more specifically. So uh, to, to see the uh, events of the last couple of years um, as the sides' uh, uh, performances on the field, and politics uh, have invaded uh, that, uh, that team, um, have been unpleasant, uh, to say the least. Uh, the last week has... Uh, sh- Thrown into sharp focus, uh, uh, just where the the team is at right now, a year and a bit ahead of the World Cup, which Australia will co-host with New Zealand. And the direction that uh, the current coach, Tony Gustafsson, is taking uh, with this side, uh, a little two years, little over two years uh, under his tenure, um, is uh, in the spotlight. To talk to us about that is uh, a man who is, is intimately familiar with the women's game and an acute uh, expert of, of tactical football to boot from ESPN and The Guardian, Joey Lynch. Welcome back to the show, Joey.
5: No, great to be back, guys. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Joey, am, am I putting too fine a point on it? Over dramatising the situation. Uh, we had a, a side that was ranked uh, number seven in the world at its best uh, under Tony Gustafsson. According to my reckoning, we've played top twenty sides eleven times. Uh, we, we've lost uh, uh, on seven occasions. We've uh, we've had three draws and one win. Um, we uh, we helped break the Irish drought of seven games running. We were expected to win a medal at the Olympics. Uh, uh, we underperformed at the Asian Cup. Uh, it, it all seems in light of the last week against Spain and Portugal to be uh, going in one direction.
5: Well, it's looking at that Spain and Portuguese series, I think looking at the team that was sent there, the results really weren't surprising, I guess in the sense given the complete absence of uh, major players and um, the players that were called up and taken over but you are right and I think uh, in terms of the trajectory I should say it's not it hasn't been altogether encouraging and I, but or, what I think is important is when we look at most of those games, yes they're friendlies and all that sort of stuff so the results I think are a secondary consideration to the actual performances that the side is putting out there on the pitch and my concern is less around results um, at this stage you know in these friendly games and all that they're friendlies you, you don't get points for winning them um, they're about preparing um, my concern is are we seeing the foundations are we seeing the building blocks being put in place for um a strong showing at a home world cup and the concern right now is that those don't really seem to be apparent um, you can concern yourself with the results. And I think there's a good, re- lot of people are doing that with good reason, but at the same time, you don't, I don't think you need to do that. You don't need to get weighed down into comparisons with past results, comparisons with other teams. When, if you just look purely at their performances, they haven't been of the type that this team, team is probably capable of, and they're not sort of trending in the right direction.
2: Joey, I guess the question is big then um, that uh, as, uh... The the international women's game has grown in stature, particularly in Europe. Obviously, we know the, the US women's national side has uh, has been uh, a a, um, a standard setter for, for many many years now. But but are we finding our own level? Was Australia um, overachieving at a certain point, and now we're we're, we're sort of finding our level? Given that uh, there was always a, a sleeping giant waiting to awake there in Europe?
5: It, I wouldn't say we, we were overachieving overachieving in the past purely because the landscape looked so very different. But now the landscape has changed and that makes things very hard. And you do have to acknowledge that, you know, the rise of Europe, these other teams coming through, that is going to uh, forever change the landscape of women's football, both on an international and a club level. Um, and that is going to have to be something that Australia contends with in the future. But um, as I said, even taking into account all of that, if we just solely look at this team right now and the way they're playing, as I said, my concern isn't so much what they're doing in comparison to other nations and where they sit in the global context. My concerns more revolve around that they're not playing as well as they could, Um, regardless, you know, they could play their absolute best and still lose to a rising power. I accept that. That's just football. You have to deal with it. But I don't think they are playing to the level that they are capable of yet. And that is my concern.
3: Joey, um, I think that you and I are are close enough to uh, the women's game to uh, pose these two questions to each other. The the, the first one is um, in the last three weeks, uh, as The bit of momentum went into this uh, Portuguese and Spain series and off the back of that, the under-23 squad to the Philippines. I must admit, I am surprised about one big item and that is Tony Gustafsson is not going to the Philippines to spend time with the um, emerging... That emerging group of players. I know there is another emerging group of players in Europe that are really not available to be selected in that team, but um, I am surprised he's not going there. And the direct analogy can be really put to um, his colleague, Graham Arnold, with the Socceroos, who did invest heavily in the under 23 program, um, qualifying the Oliroos for. Uh, the Olympic Games and then taking them to the Olympic Games. So I'm really surprised about that. And I just wanted you to reflect on whether you're surprised and whether you think that's a, a good or bad decision.
4: Mm,
5: no, I, I think that was completely to just getting back to Graham Arnold. And I believe you've, you have him on this show as well as myself. But I, what Graham Arnold's commitment to the Olly Roos um, was exemplary. I mean, one can... Uh, take issue with maybe his execution or the way he integrated players into the side. You know, that's a matter of opinions. Football is a game of opinions, but he really was committed to that, and I think that's commendable. Uh, Gustafsson's absence from this tournament, and I did note in the preliminary uh, release um, on June 10, talking about this squad, it wasn't referred to as an under-23 Matilda side. That is a new addition. Um, to the most recent press release, um, I think, uh, but it, it sort of plays into one of the long-standing concerns surrounding Gustafsson's tenure, the one of the long-standing bugbears that many figures um, in women's football here in Australia have had. And you know, I get out there, I talk to them, I ask these questions, and one of their biggest problems has been that Gustafsson hasn't really been visible in the Australian game. And I know for a large part that's been completely unavoidable because of um, the COVID-19 pandemic. He couldn't get into the country. Um, But there's a lot of concern. You know, I speak to coaches, I speak to officials, I speak to these types all the time and just wondering just why isn't, you know, why isn't he getting out there and pressing the flesh and getting out there and watching games. I think the A-League Women's Grand Final was the first A-League Women's game he'd ever actually been at in person, Um, and I guess now with the World Cup looming, one wonders if he will be back next A-League women's season when borders are open to watch more games and press the flesh. And I I mean, I remember one of the press conferences that he was at when he talked about how he was so – when the borders were initially opening and the Matildas were one of these first – actually, I think they were the first sporting side to get into the country – he was talking about really looking forward to getting out there and speaking to administrators and speaking to coaches and speaking to players and speaking to volunteers and speaking to the entire women's football ecosystem. And the feedback that I've received from several parties is that that hasn't really happened and that they wish that had happened. And that sort of, I guess, then just becomes this constant bugbear and it creates something that when he does go out and say things like, the NPL system here it needs to be raised to a higher level. The A League Women season needs to be extended. He's completely right when he says that, but unfortunately, because he has been seen as an absent figure, it doesn't come. Across, it does. It isn't received as well as it possibly could have been because he's still seen in some parties is a bit of an outsider.
3: Uh, he certainly is, and that leads to the next question. is obviously um, reflecting on the past two games with that understrength Matildas lineup and the emergence of uh, a group of players. Um, it does put the spotlight on the um, talent pathway for elite women. Um, you'd have to say that the result against Spain proved that uh, some of these players aren't ready, and that's understandable. There's been uh, a
5: dislocation around COVID, but um, I, I don't think you can blame any of the players that played against Spain for the no, result. Right. I think that's right. They're completely. But, but you can reflect that on their
3: readiness to step up to yes. the international level and what the system is producing. And um, do you think there is enough scrutiny uh, and spotlight on that talent pathway? The decisions that are made, the players that are selected, the players that are not selected, uh, the players that are invited into camp. Do you think there's enough scrutiny? Uh, on the decisions that are made there and would more scrutiny and pressure uh, be an advantageous uh, uh, aspect to um, the elite uh, women's pathway?
5: I think more scrutiny and pressure would be advantageous to literally every aspect of Australian football is the problem is there are only so many hours of the day and there are only so many people that are in trust well that not entrusted, I should say, but that have the scope to actually do that um, in terms of media figures, that there's just, there's so little scope to actually be doing that. I mean, like somebody like myself, I try to keep abreast of the women's pathways, but then at the same time, I'm trying to do that for men and boys' pathways. I'm trying to keep up with NPL men and NPLW, A-League men and (laughs) A-League women, the Socceroos and the Matildas, and trying to keep up with all as much as I can. And at some point, you can't keep up with everything. So you see... Um, some aspects of it and you try to keep uh, as informed as possible and you hear stories and you take issues with some things, but there's just not enough time of the day um, to really dive into it. And that's even before you get um, into the problems of, you know, taking a story to an editor and saying, I want to do an in-depth dive about uh, this young Matilda's camp or this young Matilda's friendly um, and trying to actually sell them that that's going to generate enough traffic and enough interest to actually merit um, then sending you out there and paying you for that story. So that's one of the major problems that you run run into. And yeah, I do you, you do look at some of the players that get called up, some of the players that don't get called up. it is um, one of the as I was talking about the talking to people based in Victoria, I know there's a lot always been a lot of angst. I constantly hear it. Um, from coaches and that in Victoria that they feel as though they should be better represented. Um, as I said, I don't get enough time to really dive into that as much as I could. I mean, I don't get to you know, watch FE emerging games as much as I'd like, let alone their junior sides and see the talent coming through. Um, but it's something that needs more attention or scrutiny, I would say, in the same way that we need more attention more scrutiny on boys' pathways. Literally everything we need, especially with you know the game looking to grow and bounce back, we need more attention on scrutiny on everything involved in Australian football. The the questions are being asked and um,
2: Dominic Vossi from uh, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote a uh, in his uh, style, a, a relatively scathing article about uh, about Tony Gustafsson. Uh, now, mm-hmm. the headline said Matildas need change, and it should start with Gustafsson. When you read the article in detail, he doesn't actually say that, um, but certainly implies that. Uh, I guess that's one example of a number of articles and comments and social media uh, that that is out there. Uh, uh, is this uh, something that that needs to be seriously considered? Would Football Australia seriously consider it? Uh, um, uh, or are they just locked in? What's your expectation of, of where this goes, and uh, and if there's any genuine conversation about changing the coach uh, at College Street?
5: Um, well, as far as I can tell, Football Australia are backing Gustavsson, um and that he will be taking uh, the Matildas to the Women's World Cup. I believe Dom wrote something similar um, regarding whether or not they should. I think I think I've actually said on this show before, from an ideological perspective, Mm. I don't agree with Federation's, uh, changing coaches in the middle of a cycle. Um, I think the national team job is a important job in that. They not only serve as coach of a national team, but they also represent um, the realisation of everything that leads up to uh, the senior national team, be it the Socceroos or the Matildas, they represent the vision um, and the idea about what we are supposed to be as a footballing nation. It's the same reason um, you're... Pre- Previous guest, uh, Graham Arnold, I took a lot of issues with some of his um, tactical decisions during World Cup qualifying, um, but I never thought he should be replaced as Socceroos coach because he represented the vision of Football Australia and Football Australia needed to show consistency and show spine by backing him. Ains living with the consequences. Um, in the end, Arnold has delivered World Cup qualification for them and now they should, in my ideological bent, um, back Gustafsson and allow him to realise the vision that he um, promised them and that they bought into when they made the decision to appoint them. Because one thing that I think does get lost, all this talk about sack the coach, replace the coach, it kind of or it's it sort of brushes over the responsibilities that not only the coach holds in these situations but the federation as a whole they are the ones that um, appoint the coach they are the ones that are supposed to um ha- have the tactical the technical staff on hands that assess their viability and their vision for the national team and then make the decision to back them so any success on a national team coach's part is a success of the federation. Any failures on the part of a national team coach are the failures of the federation. And I think that's, it's it's probably not, uh, it's one that is probably more beneficial, I think, in these wider conversations, not just allowing Gustafsson to become the major focus, but a much more holistic mindset. If people don't like what Gustafsson is doing, the question isn't just, is what Gustafsson is doing right or wrong. And I, I have a piece up in ESPN today where I re- re- reiterate all of what I'm saying to you, that the trajectory of this side's performances, regardless of their historical context or comparisons with other nation's, hasn't been as good. However, that is just one aspect of the puzzle. It's how has this situation been allowed to develop? How did these pathways get the way they are? Why was Gustafsson tapped? Why was... Um, why wasn't the load management put in place 12 months ago when the Spain-friendly was being organised so that the first-choice team would be available for that game rather than a game against New Zealand in April, who, with all due respect to New Zealand, Australia knows how to play against New Zealand. They did that at the Olympics. Spain would have been a much more valuable experience. So the conversation, I think... I. Gustafsson is very much a key figure in that but the conversation needs to be a lot broader and we need to be looking not just at Gustafsson but who installed Gustafsson what Gustafsson's vision was why was that acceptable and all of that sort of things as well and from an ideological bent that's why I disagree with replacing Gustafsson purely because he is something he's just one part of a much larger whole. Joey
2: Lynch? We get you on the show because you're an expert, but also because you apply a genuine intellectual rigour to the discussion. And in a country where there's a real dearth of, of, of passionate football journalism, uh, you make up for a lot of that uh, lack uh, with uh, the contributions that you make. And, uh, mate, we're really grateful that you jumped on. Um, it's, a, it's a long journey between now and the World Cup next year. Uh, we were facing the depths of despair for the Socceroos. Uh, we, we feel like we are a little... Uh, with the Matildas right now, but uh, hopefully we'll get the same outcome as uh, as Arnie did under Gustafsson.
5: Yeah, and I think it needs to be reinforced that just because journalists lay a level of critique to the performance of the national teams doesn't mean that we want them to fail. I remember watching that um, penalty shootout with Andrew Redmayne. I don't think I made a noise that was human when he actually saved that final penalty. I was so excited. So we absolutely want these coaches to succeed, um, but it's also the job our job in the fourth estate to apply uh, a level of critique. That's why we're employed. And, you know, it's nothing personal. <laughs> it's just a matter of we want them to succeed. And if Arnie goes to the Wing Cup, God, I mean, I think, well, as an England fan, I mm-hmm. hope he makes the World Cup final and then loses to England. But and the Matildas, I hope the Matildas, and I led to the World Cup final by Gustafsson before they lose to England. As long as Joey, Joey, <laughs> Joey, come on. <laughs> I, I have to to be consistent in my position. <laughs> as long as it's nothing personal in the way that It's Michael, nothing personal. Yes.
2: In the way that Michael Corleone would say it, because then yes. we'd have a real problem.
3: Joey? I think we need to cut Joey's appearance fees.
2: Yes, I don't think...
3: Uh, From zero to zero.
2: <laughs> <laughs> When he deserves uh, three zeros and a one at least before that. Hey, Joey, thanks again, mate. Yeah. Yes, thanks for having me, guys. Talk to you again soon. Okay, uh, Joey Lynch, uh, ESPN. Get on to uh, his articles, some of the best copy you'll read. The Guardian, of course, he writes for that publication as well. Okay, stick around. Derek is going to come off the bench. Lots more to talk about in stoppage time on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For chemist warehouse.
1: Home of real brands and real savings.
2: And storage king.
1: The kings of storage, moving and
2: more.
5: And this could be the most crucial goal of
2: Yes, this is box-to-box, great show, Arnie, Joey Lynch, Uh, we've talked soccer as Matildas, we've got lots more to talk about in stoppage time, of which the fourth official has given us plenty to discuss. Uh, Edge has run off to take more orders for his Green and Gold Army Tour for the World Cup, Uh, uh, they just keep on pinging in. Uh, Derek has come off the bench, how are you, Derek?
4: Uh, Good, thank you, gents
2: mate uh, Willem is here with us as well. So plenty to talk about um, in stoppage time this week. But uh, but we we're going to get uh, started with um, our old mate uh, Dino. Um, he, never a show passed when he was on the air where he didn't talk about Derby County. Um, their woes continue.
4: Yeah, some ups and downs at Derby, Rob. Yes, you're right. Every time I see a Derby story, I think of our, our man Dino. It, it looks like they're edging closer to being bought out by a businessman of the name of David Clowes. I hope I've got that name right, uh, David. And uh, 30 million he is worth pounds. And he's a sort of property developer uh, by trade normally. uh, He looks like he's going to buy Derby County. He's already provided them with an emergency loan uh, when they were really in trouble a, a few months back and, that is kind of one thing that that they will be happy with but we saw obviously since we had the show that Wayne Rooney has uh, departed from from Derby County uh, to be honest I, I'm surprised he he lasted as long as he did he certainly doesn't need the money does Wayne and uh, and I'm sure that other opportunities and management will will certainly come his way so I think there should be some credit given that he stuck around even in some of the most Difficult uh, decisions and uh, situation that he he had as a had as a manager. They will now be uh, led by Liam Rossini, Leroy's son, who's now re- freshly retired, and he will have to rebuild a squad for that League One that is going to be pretty threadbare. There's already been some raiders on this Derby squad already, and Premier League teams or others are trying to pick through the best of the the youngsters. But I suppose a word on rooney uh, rob i mean i think he could walk away of anyone he could walk away from derby with his head held high couldn't he
2: yeah it seems to be the case doesn't it um, derek that uh, the um the supporters of Derby County um, have uh, have uh, sent him off with with their um, with their uh, gratitude. Um, he he did say it was one of the hardest decisions of his career to, to leave, and obviously gave the you know the the traditional uh, massive thank yous to, to the fans. That was obviously his first managerial role, and uh, you know he was praised for you know his uh, his professionalism his commitment uh, uh, on the one occasion that he uh, he did uh, find himself on the park who, who was the young player that he took out in um, a little uh, uh, slightly um, enthusiastic moment um, on, on the pitch
4: at one yeah look he, he says um, as he's frantically typing away on the yeah. on Google here I do I do remember this and uh, there is some kind of link I think his name was Jason Knight and he got an he got an ankle injury, um, and I think he's only just returned from that injury because I was reading about it the other day. So thank you to the Hindu Stand Times for giving me that information. <laughs> just Republic when
2: I Ireland midfielder.
4: <laughs> just when I just just when I needed it. Yes, yes, he has been playing for the Republic of Ireland. That's where I read it. So yeah, look, I uh, I think probably similar to Gerard and Lampard, I think he comes from that same generation of players uh, that have aspirations of being managers and. You know, Rooney has a steel about him, as we know. Uh, you could maybe see him being a kind of Simeone-type manager on the touchline there with his, his cropped hair and he's uh, kind of ag- aggressive attitude there. So I don't know what the future holds for Wayne Rooney, but I don't think this will be his last job in management, that's for sure.
2: No, but um, but on to, to, to David Klaus. At least the good news is there that he's a he's a genuine supporter of the club. Um, he he financed the purchase of Pride Park as well, and uh, as you said earlier, he uh, he provided some emergency funding. So if it turns out that he's the guy that that does take over, at least he's not your sort of um, classic uh, sort of oligarch from Central Casting. He's a proper football person.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think I think you just hope with these stories that. That there's some substance to it you you often hear about the local it's the old model isn't it the local businessman that 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 takes over the club and and comes good but it doesn't always work out so there will always be a word of caution to that but uh, you know i think crystal palace is a really good example of a a club which is uh run by by someone that sort of supports the club and loves the club um so yeah let's see
2: yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, and Wayne Rooney will find out he, where his uh, his career sort of uh, direction goes from here. But what, what about the latest in, in transfer news? Uh, this is that time of year where where names get thrown up left, right and centre. If you read the BBC Sport, the gossip column seems to just about mention every player um, not under contract um, uh, on any given day.
4: Well, there's certainly lots going on. And I, and I think it's because we don't have a World Cup right now to distract or you know I would would Richarlison be on the verge of his move to Tottenham if the World Cup was on right now he would surely be with the Brazil squad and uh, you know this would be being done towards the end of the summer northern hemisphere summer rather than now and Tottenham again I mean we spoke about it with Edge a few weeks ago and again sort of player I think Arsenal should be looking at and Tottenham have got an put uh put, put their stamp on this one, a £50 million fee. So that's for Charleston. Started off at Watford, of course, and then moved up to Everton, and now he will be playing Champions League football uh, next season, Willem.
1: How's he going to be viewed at Everton, Derek? Because I think he was magnificent over those last couple of months. He really, of all the players, looked to have the bit between his teeth. He was scoring. A lot of them were from the penalty spot, but he more than anyone seemed to harness the sort of desperation and
4: channel that to, to keep them in, in the top flight. I thought it was phenomenal, William. Uh, William, as you said, because uh, you maybe don't—it's maybe a bit of a cultural stereotype—but you maybe don't associate the Brazilian players, particularly attacking flair players, with sort of gritty, steely performances or carrying the team on their shoulders. And you know, you could have easily have seen Richarlison maybe throwing his toys out the pram as everton plummeted through the premier league but quite the opposite he didn't want everton to go down he probably knew a move was well on the cards for next season i'm sure his agent was telling him about interest from the likes of arsenal spurs manchester united chelsea etc uh but yeah I, i think he can walk away again with his head held high i think he you know if his legacy is saving everton from the drop what a legacy huh
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Look, a player of his talent really has no business down at that end of the table. So, as you said, uh, a prima donna might have thrown the toys out of the cot. Um, Derek, Romelu Lukaku, 300 odd days after leaving Inter Milan, is heading back there. Chelsea paid a club record £97.5 million, uh, and now they're going to receive just a £7 million loan fee uh, to get rid of him. Is this the best piece of business ever by Inter and the worst by Chelsea?
4: Certainly, from an Inter point of view, uh, they would have liked him last season. Of course, they were they were pipped to the title, and you'd probably think that you know Romelu Lukaku may have delivered the odd goal that may have delivered the points for Serie A. But getting getting the guy back, and we know he's got this huge affinity for the city. I think there were reports of him driving around Italy once they were champions a couple of years ago in his car, like beeping the horn, leaning out the window and fans kind of waving and shouting at him. So he's genuinely loved there. And to get a player of such stature back uh, into a league where he's thrived, I mean, that's a super piece of business. Is it a great piece of business for Chelsea? No, it clearly clearly hasn't turned turned out the way they wanted. I mean, you could also point to um, Paul Pogba. Uh, he let go for free by Manchester United to yeah. <laughs> yeah. Juventus, then bought back for hundred million, and then let go for free back to Juventus again. So Juventus yeah. clearly <laughs> getting the best part of that deal, and uh, Chelsea just goes on the scrap heap of strikers that they've. You know, Andrei Shevchenko at the time, the thirty million price tag was pretty eye watering. You think about Torres for fifty million, that certainly didn't work out. Even uh, you know, Murata, Crespo, any of those players like there were big were big money moves at the time that didn't work out but yeah this one probably takes the biscuit along with the uh, the Pogba on Willem
1: and what about Gabriel Jesus i would argue that and not that i've thought through every single player but i would argue that he's probably the best underutilized asset in the premier league at the moment with manchester city and that, that- In saying that, I mean, probably the best player who doesn't play week in, week out. Uh, And that's only going to continue with Haaland coming in and Julian Julian Alvarez. Uh, So we might be headed to your club, Arsenal, Derek. Where is that move at and how would you receive it? It's
4: done. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the deal deal. is done. I don't think I've seen the photo with him holding the shirt. which That's is what I consider it done. consider it done, but he's he's agreed the five-year deal. He's agreed the package. He's passed the medical. The deal's definitely happening. And by all accounts, he did have other offers, but it was the uh, Edu Mikel Arteta access. Of course, uh, he worked with Arteta uh, in uh, Arteta's time at Manchester City. And of course, Edu, the Brazilian connection there. And he will sacrifice Champions League football, at a number of the other clubs that he could have gone to to play for to play for Arsenal and some Europa League oh, football and down, apparently down.
2: breaking news guys breaking news according to the Daily mirror uh, bidee, 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 bidee. is that the right sound um, there is a picture of Gabriel Jesus spotted in his new Arsenal shirt with the number nine on the back
4: number nine
2: um, yes that classic uh, number nine uh, supported by some uh, luminaries of uh, of Arbery over the generations.
4: Can you name any prop? The numerator uh, you're talking Ale- about?
2: Alexandra. luck is it? Yeah. Give me some time, will I? <laughs> Sorry.
4: Oh, Julio Baptista, of course. Uh, Eduardo, Podolsky. Uh Yeah, there's been... It's been a bit of a curse number for Arsenal, that one. But uh, Alan Smith, I'll take you back all the way back to the 1980s, early 90s. Classic Arsenal player. who scored the first goal in the 2-0 win at, at uh, Anfield to win the league for Arsenal. on that famous... Day. Sorry, Rob. But yeah, he was the proper number nine that um, I can remember from from Arsenal history. So, look, I'm I'm happy. I think that's the kind of signing we needed to make, Willem. Uh, We clearly had problems scoring goals last season. Uh, Lacazette, you mentioned him before, did not score enough goals, Uh, wasn't too mobile on the pitch. Otamangue, of course, went to Barcelona and scored a million goals, but um, we obviously hadn't replaced him yet as well. We've 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 signed Eddie Nketiah, who I believe will still play the same function in the team, which is the bench impact striker. Do Arsenal need another striker? Yes, probably. Uh, but Gabriel Jesus, yeah, like his goals to games ratio is minutes per goal ratio is not the best. But I think given the opportunity to operate as a genuine number nine at the top there with the likes of uh, Odegaard uh, pulling the strings behind, behind, I think he will get the opportunities to score goals. And it was a a big problem for Arsenal last season that, that, that's that been addressed for sure. Uh, some of the other uh, ones that we should wrap on, we, we got the Gareth Bale news wrong last week. I think we have to keep admitting to our, our listeners that we don't always get it right uh, on box to box and bail instead off to Los Angeles FC where he'll join former Arsenal striker Carlos Vela and Giorgio Chiellini who is now going there because it's are going to the World Cup. He, uh, it's a bit of a backward compliment for the MLS but basically saying that he could afford not to play in a good league uh, so he, he has gone to the uh, los angeles fc and will play in el Tráfico uh, against la galaxy and others the the thinking behind this one gents is it will work for him because the mls season is more like a calendar season and it will finish just before the qatar world cup so he theoretically should have played a full season and uh he he will be ready for for, for qatar so that's a done deal for for gareth bale and calvin phillips is also a done deal as well so city uh, Fernandinho, of course, leaving a big gap, leaving the team. But uh, he will uh, be replaced by Calvin Phillips. He's highly rated. Obviously, he's already in the England team. And Leeds, you know, already looking like losing Rafinha. Uh, we don't know where Rafinha is going. It did look like Arsenal for a while, but there are now, uh, uh, but the, but a, a number of different clubs now uh, in the race um, for that for that signature. Too. So uh, plenty of stuff going on as usual, Rob, in, and, and I'm sure the transfer window will keep us busy over this kind of boring summer period in the Northern mm-hmm. Hemisphere.
2: Mm, it sure will, um, but that boring summer finish period will will end soon. I think we're all going to uh, have uh, one uh, weather eye on the women's Euros, which will which will start to uh, yeah uh, take uh, set a stage soon, and um, and then before we know it, the uh, well it's already July, isn't it, as we record? So the league starts next month, so we'll be talking about that soon. Um, uh, th- there was one brief story we wanted to talk about before we wrap up, though. This is that Amazon deal, uh, uh, Derek, um, uh, close to. Uh, wrapping up the champions' rights um, in the UK.
4: Yeah, that's right. And I know that Edge, if he was here, he likes, you know, we, we do do the business of football a lot on this show. And Edge is a keen follower of these kinds of deals. It's part of his bread and butter and following the economics of his of his own industry. And yes, so the Amazon uh, are going to disrupt the UK broadcast market. I know this for our Australian this year, it, it, uh, listeners is not exactly the groundbreaking news that they're looking for, but just it's, it's important, I think, on a broader scale. I know you guys earlier in the show were talking about Paramount Plus and the role of streamers now. And, you know, back when I left uh, England for Australia uh, nearly uh, eight, eight years or so ago, the Champions League rights were held by ITV, which was the is the equivalent of Channel 7, Channel 9 over here, and Sky, obviously, the equivalent of... Foxtel and now those rights are going to be split between BT Sport who you would say is a kind of Telstra you know that the the national telco uh, who are doing it doing streaming and then Amazon have now come in to take it uh, f- take it on too and again it's just just points to this ever shifting paradigm where we're going to start downloading more subscription uh, sites more platforms more apps and You know, the likes of Foxtel and and those kinds of broadcasters, they're they're just not, they're being outmuscled and outbid. Rob, uh, I I don't think we could ever foresee a future, could we, where, you know, we would see Champions League, for example, on Australian free-to-air television, never mind Foxtel.
2: No, you wouldn't have, and 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 to speak of our, our uh, sort of uh, our twenty four seven jobs, um, yours in the broadcast industry, uh, it's all about content, isn't it? And uh, and that's what sport provides. Uh, uh, these streaming services is uh, is ready made, compelling uh, edge of your seat content that uh, uh, you know you contrast it to a television uh, series or uh, or a movie, and the, the volume of work and hours and people that. Uh, that go to create that kind of content, um, and uh, and and then you compare it to, to the importance of sport. The, these um, these streamers uh, are, are seeing or have seen for a long time now uh, um, that sport is an easy way to get this great content and get these eyeballs uh, across to them. So uh, it's another change, and um, and if there's one thing's for sure is that this uh, kind of change is going to be constant in our lifetimes uh, for. Uh, for generations to come. All right, mate. Well, look, let's uh, let's wrap it up there. There's a bunch of other things we wanted to talk about, but we can park those for next week. We do have some finally some big news for our listeners on, on box to box uh, of, of our, our new broadcast home, uh, which uh, is exciting. We'll tell you about that next week. Um, Edge has gone off selling more tickets to the World Cup. Uh, Derek, uh, you've got a busy weekend. Enjoy it.
4: Yes, thanks very much, everyone, and we'll be back peddling transfer gossip next week.
2: We will. Willem, thank you very much for your efforts, my son. Thank you, gents, as always. And Damien Tardio, the great Damien Tardio. His uh, name is known far and wide as the the great producer, production, editor, button pusher who makes us sound far better than we could possibly hope to sound on our own devices. Uh, Thank you, my friend, for uh, putting in another great shift this week. And to our listeners, uh, thank you for supporting us for so long now. Uh, uh, Please make sure you tell your friends, subscribe to us on uh, Box to Box, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Join us, of course, as we always ask you next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.